it's great to see you here tonight. Uh, we are continuing in a series, in the early part of a series that we're doing over the next few weeks, focusing on our values as a church, pursue God, build community, grow people. And this week, I'm going to talk to you about the first of those, the pursuit of God. Now, in the byline to that value, it says that we help people find God and walk closely with Him. And that describes perfectly what I want to try to do tonight, is to help you to find God and walk closely with Him. And what I want to do actually is to correct a few misconceptions that I believe have a kind of blinding effect on us as we set about pursuing God. And by pursue God, we mean pursuing an ever deeper relationship with God. It's not like God is somewhere else or hiding from us. God isn't hiding from us. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a moment. By the pursuit of God, we mean the pursuit of an ever deeper relationship uh, with God. Relationships are dynamic things. They grow and build. And, and so uh, that's really the, the heart of the Christian faith is that journey that we can go in walking with God and deepening our relationship. But there's a, as I said, there are some things that have this blinding effect. And in a sense, what I wanna do is kind of, is I wanna remove some of those misunderstandings. And I, these, the things that I'm gonna talk to you about tonight, are they're relatively simple. They're very fundamental things. But if you, if you can grasp what I'm, going to talk about tonight, if you can take this away and actually recognise this and apply this, I am so confident that this will be a life-changing thing. And I say that because these things have been life-changing realisations for me, like really life-changing realisations in my relationship with God. The first couple are essentially really an issue of confusing the beginning with the end. Now there's gonna be a little bit of repetition here tonight because as we talk about this value, I'm drawing a few strands together that I've talked a little bit about before. But I figure it doesn't hurt, a little bit of repetition, particularly on the really important things. We have this tendency to confuse the beginning from the end and what I mean by that is there are things that we need to start with that we misconstrue actually as the goal of our pursuit of God. And this is what I mean by this. Like the goal of our pursuit of God is as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's a beautiful relational statement. You know, God wants us to love Him and enjoy Him and, and to love and enjoy each other and His creation. It's a beautiful relational picture, right? Now that's the goal. But we tend, to, we tend to see the goal as gaining some sense, and this is confusing where we need to start from the goal. We, we tend to think that the goal is attaining some, some kind of experience of God's presence, right? That we need, to, we need to do things and sort of to get to this point where we can really experience God's presence. Or, and the other thing is, the other thing that we tend to see as a goal is getting some sense that God really loves me. And what I wanna argue, first of all, I wanna argue that those two things are things that you actually need to begin with and that if you don't begin with those things, you're actually not gonna get anywhere. Let me start with the first because you'll see what I'm talking about um, as, I, as I go on, hopefully. <laughs> 
a lot of this comes from conversations with people as well, not only my own personal experience, but a lot of conversations with this, I see this coming out as I ask uh, people, what, what do they struggle with most when it comes to the pursuit of God? And one of the things that we get caught up on is that when we think about pursuing God, we get caught up in pursuing something like, and this is where there's a little bit of repetition, like we're looking for some kind of experience, right? Some kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe some kind of emotional experience or some kind of tangible experience uh, somewhere. I mean, it's hard to even, when people, you know, tell me of, of their struggles and I, and I ask the question, well, what is it that you're actually, what is it that you want? What, what would you want God to do, right? And it often comes down to some kind of thing that got something, right? And the problem with that is that it inevitably is a kind of tacit denial of actually who God is in this sense, because God is not something. God is the source of everything, God is infinite and eternal. He is present all the time in everything, everywhere. We are literally immersed in the presence of God. And this is what I mean by when I say that we need to begin with this. The fact is we are all experiencing God right now. It's just the constancy, the sheer constancy of that experience. And what I mean is, is that even the very life that animates you right now, the fact that you are even living, it's like an unfolding work of God. The fact that you're even consciousness, consciousness, you know, something that that no one can really adequately account for, discarding all reductionist theories about consciousness, you know, being an emergent property of the brain and all of that rubbish. Uh, It's actually, you know, it's, This is something amazing. It's a participation in something divine, right? So even your very awareness of being in this room, the life that animates you right now, the very planet you're living on, the universe you're living in, all these things are a constant unfolding experience of God. It's just that it's so constant, we don't notice it. I think we're looking for something intermittent as though God is a God that occasionally just sort of pops in every now and again. If we seek hard enough, you know, if we pray hard enough, if we're zealous enough, then, you know, maybe God will kind of pop in and and manifest himself and then withdraw to wherever else he goes to. No, God isn't the theological word for this, just in case you want one, is God is omnipresent. He He is present all the time, everywhere, you are immersed in the presence of God. It's a little bit like, imagine yourself being immersed in a great river of God flowing through all things, through every cell in your body, every moment. You are immersed in a great river of God that flows. And there are two different ways to live. Every, it's everyone, is, everyone is immersed in this. You cannot escape God. But there are two ways to live. You either go against the flow or you go with the flow. That's the choice. And the first thing that you need to recognise if you're to seek God is who God is. The sheer greatness of God, the sheer constancy of God often is the very reason why we don't even recognise God. It's like you're probably not conscious of this now, but you are breathing air. 
You didn't wake up this morning and go, whoa, I'm breathing. Man, that's amazing. I'm breathing air. What a- because it's actually pretty amazing. But, you know, you're not like, it didn't, it didn't really wow you today, did it? Now, listen, air is so constantly present that we just don't notice it. And yet, it keeps us alive. Now, you know, air, when it moves, is called wind. This is, we're really, this is just so deep tonight. But just because there's a sense in which the air moves, it doesn't mean it wasn't present in the first place. In the same way, yes, indeed, God moves and God does things. And sometimes, you know, we can have more elevated experiences of God. But the problem is, is that it's almost like we won't recognise God unless we have some kind of elevated experience, some kind of tangible thing. And so in a sense, we're almost creating an idol unless I experience something, right? Some big experience, some this, and we go chasing after those things when actually, and, and in a sense, so what we've done is that we've made a, that into a goal when it actually should be the starting point. This, this honestly, this will change your life if you learn to begin, if you learn to begin by saying, and this is faith, folks, this is what faith is. Faith is where you take that little spark of intuition that God has put in you, that, that divine little bit of intuition that God has planted in you. The Bible says that, that faith is a gift of God, right? He plants it in you, but you need to exercise it. And you have to start with faith. And that sounds like starting by saying, Lord, I acknowledge that you are present. I acknowledge your presence. Acknowledge the presence of God. Don't listen to your feelings. Don't try to overthink it. You're never gonna be able to think your way into this. Acknowledge this, exercise that that spark of intuition and that act of acknowledgement will begin to grow that spark. That's the first thing. You are immersed in a great river of God's presence and it's carrying you along. It's keeping you alive. You are literally immersed in God so don't, next time you go and pray, don't, don't be thinking, oh Lord, you know, where, what's, I wonder where God is unless I get some big, no, no. Start with this, Lord, I acknowledge your presence. I acknowledge your presence. Begin with faith, begin with worship. I surrender to your flow. The second thing that we often confuse as a goal, something that unless we start with, you won't go anywhere, is a sense that God loves you. Sometimes we can see that as something that I need to get to, right? I need to, I need to get to the point where I feel like God loves me. But the mistake that we make here is that we think that God loves people because we're thinking about love in the sort of ordinary way that we speak about falling in love. When we speak about falling in love, uh, you know, we think about... Being, you know, thinking someone is just so amazing. 
how could I not fall in love with them? Like, how could I not love that person? So it's, it's very, it's kind of object-driven sort of love. But see, God, God's love actually is, is different to that. God doesn't like fall in love. God does, you know, doesn't think, oh, oh man, that person, they are just so amazing. Oh man, I'm so impressed with that person. They're so godly and they pray and they've just got so much zeal and God just says, oh man, I just really love that person because of all of those things, right? And so it's no wonder that a lot of us then think, well, I'm not really like that person. So yes, I can imagine that God loves that person, but not so much me. And I guarantee there are a lot of people in this room who think like that, who think, yeah, I can believe that God loves maybe this person or that person, but I don't think that God really loves me. And the confusion there is a confusion about why God loves. God loves because God is love. You see, first of all, at one level, it's a little bit like me loving my children. I mean, I love my children because I'm their father. I don't love them because of their attributes or the things that they do well or because of their achievements. And of course, I want them to achieve and I want them to be good and do all the right, but that's not why I love them, right? You know, and sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes my, my children, uh, they, they make me really happy and, and other times, you know, not so much, right? But, but I never, ever stop loving them. Why? Because I am their, I'm their dad, I'm their father, right? Now that is true of God as well. But with God, it goes to another level, right? Because it can be said about me that I love my children, but it can't be said of me as it is said of God that I am love. But it says of God, God is love. In other words, to put this theologically, it means that love is an essential attribute of God. It's just who God is, right? So it's not like God can be more or less loving. You know, God kind of loves, he's in a good mood today, but yeah, to, tomorrow, not so much. Or God loves this person, but then not so much that person. No, no, God loves because God is love. And God can no more not love than God cannot be God. So to believe in God is to believe that God loves. And because God is love, he loves you. In as much as God is present, in as much as you are immersed in the very presence of God, you are embraced by his love because the one in whose presence you are immersed, he is love. Now you've got to start there. Like I, I know from experience how important this is because when you know, when I try to pray, the first, the first thing I need to understand is that I need to, I need to understand, Lord, you are present. I'm immersed in your presence. And Lord, you love me. And so I begin by responding to God's love. I begin by being thankful about God's love. If you get those two things, that will change your life. 
Now, I've spoken about those things before. That's the starting point. But having started from that starting point, what then, assuming that we understand that God is present, that God loves us, what does God actually really want from us? There's an important question. What does God really, really want from us? And here too, we can fall into a misconception because when we think about what God really wants, we, we have this tendency to think that I need to sort of build up this kind of mountain of spiritual achievements that if I do this and this and this enough, and if I'm zealous enough, and if I, if I, you know, if I just pray enough, and if I'm just, you know, really whip myself up, and I, and I, you know, spend so many hours, and I serve enough, and I give enough, all of which are really good things, by the way, let's not deny that. All of those things are really good. But you see, we make them into achievements, like mounting up achievements, like building a great mountain. There's something about this intuition, this idea that to really please God, you've got to sort of mount up achievements and that that's, if I really want to please God, that's what I've got to do. And there's something in the human psyche that we, because we see this in all different religions. In fact, in the ancient world, they used to build these things. I'm going to show you this picture. Uh, this is a ziggurat and ziggurats were like artificial mountains because they had this sense that to get to God, we've got to sort of, we've got to, we've got to build up to God in some sense. We've got to get to God and God's up there. And so they would build these artificial mountains that they felt like reached God. And the, the Tower of Babel, some of you may be familiar with the, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And most probably the Tower of Babel was one of these things, a ziggurat. It's this kind of ubiquitous element of human religiosity that seems to be compelled by this sense, I've got to achieve all of these things to kind of to really, so that God will delight in me, right? So let me ask again the question, is this really what God, is this why actually God wants us to pray and you know, do all of these things? Is this why God wants us to be zealous? And is it really about doing it enough and, you know, all of that sort of stuff? I want to present to you an alternative idea. And it's so beautifully expressed in a story that Jesus told. And it's recorded in Luke chapter 18. I just for a few moments, I want us to have a quick look at this story because it's very significant because it really inverted something. It inverted this sort of mountain building kind of tendency that we seem to be so compelled by as human beings. It goes like this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. There were people, by the way, in those days who, who were really confident. They made a fine art of zeal and keeping the law. And, you know, I mean, the, these, particularly these people called Pharisees, and he's going to mention a Pharisee here. They made a fine art of, I mean, these guys were big, big spiritual achievers. And so this is what Jesus said. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee 
and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were like these corrupt officials. They were seen as traitors to the nation because they worked for the occupying Romans and they would extract money for the Romans, but they would take a large margin themselves. They would take a lot extra. And most people in those days listening, most people listening to that parable would at least have known someone whose life was ruined by a tax collector, like really ruined. They didn't have safety nets in those days. If you were exploited hard enough, it would ruin your life. So these guys, these were really bad guys. And so Jesus says, these two men that went up to the temple to pray, one was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. It says in verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all, of I, all I get. Both, by the way, really good things. You know, Jesus isn't saying that these are bad things. But see the attitude of this guy. I mean, he's really, he's got some achievements piled up. And Jesus is gonna answer the question, now who does God, who, you know, what does God really delight in? What is God looking for here? What is God really looking for? Verse 13, but the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. What Jesus here is doing is that he's completely inverting the religious model. The model that says that if you do this enough and that enough and if you give enough and pray enough and all the things that so many people that I talk about, so many Christians feel like such an abject failure. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to Christians who even, you know, just give up because they've, you know, they've tried and tried and just feel like I'm such a failure as a Christian. I've just lost hope. I just can't. But actually what good, what the very thing that God is looking for, he is looking for your, I just can't. That's what he wants. That's the very thing that he wants. I just can't. I just haven't. I have failed. That's what he wants. Psalm 51 says, the sacrifice of God. Ask the question, what does God want? What sort of sacrifice does God want, right? And the Psalm says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's the guy that comes and says, I've got nothing. I've got less than nothing. I can't. It's our need. 
And so it's kind of the inversion of the mountain, you know, the mountain of achievement. It's the inversion of that that I think is expressed well in this next picture. In a sense, rather than building a kind of mountain, what God actually wants us to do, right? This is, and, and this is gonna answer the kind of things that God is gonna help you to actually do. Because you won't get a lot of help building the mountain of achievements because God's not, that's, that's not what he wants. What God wants is to carve out a great container of need. A catchment, a great empty space that says, I just can't, I just haven't. And God loves that because it gives him an empty space to fill. And more than anything, God wants to fill your heart with his Holy Spirit, but he needs empty hearts. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not those who already have it, but those who come with their need. That will change your life. Because that sense when you try to pray and you think, I, you know, I've hit that wall and I just kept charging that wall. I just can't, right, I'll try harder, bang. I just can't, I'll try. And then, you know, it's so discouraging, isn't it? You know what? It's true, you can't. In fact, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But you've got to get to the place where you know that you can't. One of the most important spiritual disciplines for me that for me expresses this is just the practice of being still before God. Because it, in that, those moments where I just wait before God, it's like I'm marinating in that sense of, I can do nothing apart from you. God, unless you do something, I can do nothing. And so waiting in stillness. This is why, it, it's, it's such a, I think it's such an important thing, particularly in our culture. It's why the first Monday night of every month, we put time aside, the waiting room, to simply have time sitting before God. It's a beautiful way to marinate in your sense of need. And you know, in those moments where my mind wanders and you know, all over the place, and it's like, you, meant, you know, you, that feeling, you're meant to be praying, but your mind's wandering and you beat yourself up. You know, to me, that sense of it's like, man, I can't even do this, God. That's a good place to start, is the response. That's great. It's a good place to start. God wants us to come with, I just haven't. I just can't, I've just failed. Well, if that's you, you're exactly the sort of person God's looking for. Exactly the sort of person that God is looking for. If you feel like that you have been an abject failure, then God is calling you to bundle up all that sense of failure to bundle up all of the offenses, all of the guilt, all of the sin, all of the thing that you just feel like you feel so, he wants you to bundle that up and bring it to him, why? Because he paid for that in Jesus Christ. He paid for it. That's why Jesus said, I've not come for the righteous, but for sinners. Why did he say that? Because he paid for our sin on the cross. 
the centerpiece of the Christian message is that God healed the breach, the relational breach. Yes, we went against the current, we worked against God. We didn't acknowledge, yes, there's failure, but God says it's okay. I paid for your failure. I've paid for it in Jesus Christ. And now, having paid such an enormous price, imagine paying such an enormous price for something and then not getting what you paid for. Imagine how much you're gonna want. The bigger the price you paid for it, the more that you're gonna want to get what you paid for. Do you have failure? Do you have guilt? Do you have shame? God says, man, I really want that and I want you to bring it to me. because I paid for it. And he really, really, as I say many times, he really wants to get what he paid for. And that's you. Well, if we get that, that's a pretty good start. That'll get you started. And the right starting point is everything. Why don't we stand up together? So much did Jesus know that we would need help in receiving these truths that he gave us physical symbols because he knew how counterintuitive this would be. He knew that you know, we might listen to our feelings or our intuitions and no, no. So he gave us physical symbols to communicate the fact of what he had done for us. And so we took bread and he took wine and the bread represents the broken body of Jesus and the cup represents the shed blood of Jesus. This is the price that was paid for you. And as we take this together, I'm gonna to take a few moments to receive this together tonight. This is a way of putting our feet, it's getting up again. Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe tonight you've never really actually stepped onto that path. Maybe, you know, maybe you feel like you've strayed or maybe you've just sat down on the edge of the path because you've lost hope. Maybe you've never walked on that path at all. Well, God is calling everyone, everyone. Saying, listen, I paid for you. I love you. Will you give yourself to me? Will you surrender to the wonderful flow of my spirit and let me carry you through this life? Will you let me do that? And we use these symbols simply to say, yes, yes, Jesus. Let's say that tonight. Jesus, tonight, we say yes to you. We say yes, Jesus. I need that. That's me. I failed. I need forgiveness. Jesus, that's me. I, I can't, I, I, I just haven't been able to, I, this is, and, and I, I just feel like this is, it's just hope, Lord, I can't, I need your help. I can't.
come to you with needs. All I've got. It's all I've got, Jesus, is need. But what amazing grace that that happens to be the very thing that delights you the most. And so, Lord, I bundle up my failure, bundle up my hopelessness, bundle it all up, and I'm going to carry it to you and give it to you. Because, Lord, I want to start again. If that's your prayer tonight, I encourage you, while the team is playing this song, to come up take one of these little packs. It's got a bit of bread in it. It's got a little cup. Take a few moments to open it up. And then just pause. Say, yes, Jesus. And eat and drink in your own time to declare that. Let's do that tonight.